You can open to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. We'll be in verses 19 through 31. I was in the kitchen the other day, and, and one of my boys asked, Dad, who pays you? And I said, what do you, what do you mean? And he goes, I mean, how do you get paid? And I said, well, the, the, the folks at church are generous enough and to support the ministry of our church, and part of that offering goes uh, to pay me to be able to work at the church. And he said, oh, so you mean like when they put money in the offering box? And I said, yeah. And he says, dead serious. Is that why you want me to put part of my allowance in the offering box? (laughs) We've seen that Jesus is, is pressing into this area of money. First, he started with his disciples, and then he moved on and pressed into the Pharisees and the hardness of their heart who were lovers of money. We saw in the first parable that Jesus challenged the disciples to be shrewd in the way that they use money. Not not ungodly, uh, not self-centered spending, but to be wise. And wisdom looks like spending money in ways that please and glorify God, which indicates a sense of generosity on the part of God's people. This second parable that we're looking at in chapter 16 comes with this warning. The self-centered, others-ignoring use of money invites the eternal wrath of God. Greed is such a powerful idol that it can take root in any heart and it can leave a person totally unresponsive and hardened to the needs of their neighbor. So we need the words of Christ this morning. We need to be confronted with the words of Jesus that have been recorded for us here by Luke. Greed is a common temptation for all of us. So for some this morning, that this text may come as a warning to stop serving money. To stop serving the things that money can buy. Quit banking your hopes on those sorts of things. For many who are in Christ this morning and are seeking to love and serve God, this might be a reminder that, that, that you don't want to walk in, in this, this self-centered, others-ignoring use of money. Don't walk in the very things that, that invite the wrath of God, the wrath from which you've been saved. So let's turn our attention to, to the text. I think the outline's fairly simple uh, this morning. It doesn't mean the text is simple, it just means the outline's simple. We're going to look at the characters first. And I say characters because Jesus introduces this as, as a parable. Look there in verses 19 through 21. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. So there's two initially introduced to us in this parable. The first is the rich man. That's the exact same way Jesus introduced the first parable. There was a rich man. And by all accounts, by outward estimation, this man is living the dream. His life is luxurious down to the clothes that he wears. He has clothes that are dyed in purple. 
And actually, historically, we know that dye was like extracted from a certain type of snail and was a very expensive process and a very expensive form of clothing. His linens were fine, they say. Now, that's most likely a reference to like his undergarments. So his luxury extends down even to his undergarments. And his desire for fine clothing and his ability to pull off this this expensive wardrobe is not to be outdone by his appetite. The text says he is feasting sumptuously every day. And just in, in one verse, we get this sense that this guy is living a great life, at least in one sense. In fact, most in Israel at the time, they would have looked on at this man who, who, who has these luxurious comforts, and they probably would have thought to themselves, this man has God's favor and blessing. This must be God's man. Just look at the way that all these riches have been poured out on to him. And you could excuse an Israelite for thinking this, right? If Israel was promised as a nation, as part of the Old Covenant, they were promised blessing for obedience, curses for disobedience. You can almost excuse them for looking at an individual and saying, you know what? This must be a reward for his righteous obedience. In fact, you see this attitude in the disciples and In Mark chapter 10, when Jesus says it's actually easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You know what it says after that? And the disciples were astonished at his words. They couldn't believe that Jesus would say that. Well, if a rich man who seems to have the favor and blessing of God, if he can't make it in the kingdom, who can? Well, thankfully... Jesus did say, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. But first we have this this rich man who appears outwardly to be favored and blessed. And then we meet Lazarus, a poor beggar. If you saw in verse 20, if you're you're reading closely, it says, "He, he, He was laid at the entrance of this gate. He likely didn't even lay, lay himself there. He's probably unable to move. That's an, why these dogs could come lick him, and he's unable to even get the dogs away from him. Lazarus has been reduced to poverty and begging, seems to be immobilized in, in some way. Can't even keep the dogs away. And he lays outside the gate of the rich man, and he's hoping that that whatever food sort of falls and hits the floor, that maybe this will come his way sometime. You know, this the, the fact that this rich man has even a gate at his house indicates this must be some kind of palace. And so the imagery is, is unmistakable. The rich man inside purple clothing, expensive fashion, feasting to his heart's content, all the while ignoring the man at the gate. Unable to move, the text says covered in sores all over his body, dogs licking his his wounds, hoping for crumbs. And from the outside, again, we might make the, the... opposite air and say, you know what? This man must have the curse of God. 
This man must be disfavored by God. He must have done something to deserve the poverty. Again, we could go somewhere else and, and, and find places where the disciples are saying, who sinned? This man or his parents? Because he's, he's suffering. Is he under God's indignation? Well, thankfully, we have the perspective of Christ this morning. We don't, we're not left to guess. Before we get to their, their destinies, notice one more difference between Lazarus and the rich man. There's one significant difference. The rich man remains anonymous, but Lazarus has a name. And I think in this way, we see the difference between the way God sees people and the way we tend to think about people. We can get drawn away too and thinking, man, the rich must have some kind of favor or blessing on them. Though the people in Israel would be far more likely to recognize the name of the rich man, only Lazarus gets a name from Jesus in this parable. Though Lazarus was likely unrecognized by people who walked by, God knows him. He cares for him, and he knows his eternal destiny. In fact, the name Lazarus means God is my help. And though every outward indication would seem that Lazarus was disfavored by God, that he was under some kind of curse, God knows the heart, and he knew the heart of Lazarus. He sees, he knows, he cares. And one day soon, in the timeline of this parable, one day soon, his situation will be completely reversed. Not in this life, but in eternity. And that's where Jesus goes next. We see two very different eternities. Look in verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. If suffering in this life and poverty in this life and hardship in this life indicated God's disfavor, then you might assume that that, that trajectory just continued on into eternity. That there's this sort of trend, there's this sort of direction that life is hard here and therefore life will be harder for you, Lazarus, in eternity because, again, this must be your own doing. But there's this shocking twist for those who had sort of bought into that narrative. And we saw it there in verse 22, that Lazarus dies and he's carried by the angels to Abraham's side. Or some of your translations may say Abraham's bosom. Now some have tried to, tried to say that there's uh, this Abraham's bosom, it's, it's a specific place where the Old Testament saints kind of hung out until the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. But I think that's probably pressing the details of a parable too, too far. The idea is that he's transported by these angels to Abraham's side, to, 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 to be next to Abraham. This makes sense given what Jesus has said in the Gospel of Luke when he warned the Pharisees that, that they're going to look on, sort of like this rich man looks on and sees uh, Lazarus next to Abraham. You're going to look on and see that you've missed the feast. 
You're not going to be at Abraham's side and Jacob's side and Isaac's. You're going to miss that because of your self-righteousness. The idea is that Lazarus, again, whose name means God is my help, is immediately upon his death in the home of the righteous. Or Jesus says, paradise on the cross. Today you shall be with me in paradise. Notice, at the end of verse 22, the rich man was buried. But nothing is said of the burial of poor Lazarus. I think there's some imagery here where the rich man was carried by pallbearers to an elaborate tomb. But the poor man was transported by angels to the side of Abraham in his heavenly home. See, angels, they they are ministers of God. They're created beings who do the will of God, at least righteous angels. They do the bidding of God, and it was God's good pleasure to bring Lazarus home. And again, I'm struck by God's care of this poor man, Lazarus. The infinite, eternal, holy God cares for a man who was mistreated and maligned in this world. I think there is hope for us as Christians this morning that you can have great confidence when it comes time for you to draw your final breath. There's hope in the midst of death that God cares for His people. We may not know exhaustively what eternity is like, but we do know the one to whom we are going. He is a kind and a gentle God to His own. But this transportation by the Ministers of God to Abraham's side. It's not the fate of everyone. It's not the fate of everyone simply by the virtue that they are human. We see a far different outcome in the rich man. Again, we might have guessed wrongly that the one who looked blessed in this life would continue in that trajectory and he would enjoy eternal bliss, eternal riches. That's not the case. The rich man is found, the text says, to be tormented in Hades. Now, Hades is a a, a word, especially in this text, that's indicating the, the, the home of the wicked. The home of the wicked who have died and they wait their final judgment. They wait that great white throne judgment mentioned in Revelation 20, verses 13 through 14. It says this, And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades, there's there's our word, gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each of them according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. So there is this Seemingly a, a, a home for the wicked while they wait that final judgment. And even prior to this final judgment, the text says Hades is a place of extreme torment. The consistent testimony of Scripture, the consistent testimony of Scripture is that eternal conscious torment awaits those who are not counted righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. 
But unlike the way we use the term how today, the testimony of Scripture is not to, to gloat or to glibly hope that people would end up there. It's to warn. And we'll see the warning in a minute from the very mouth of the rich man. It's to warn, to turn to God, to come to Him, to place your faith in Jesus Christ and in Him alone. In fact, this, this, this warning is seen in verse 24 where the torment is so intense that it would be an utter relief for somebody to dip their finger in some water and touch the tongue. Despite all this man's riches, despite all that he enjoyed in this life, this man finds himself in utter despair. So why the, why the account of the riches? Why the, the continual emphasis that he had this nice of clothes and he had this nice of a, a house that he needed a gate? Well, I think his money plays two parts in this story that we can glean from. First, the way that he used his money, or maybe more specifically in this parable, the way he chose not to use his money to serve God and to love his neighbor. This is indicative that he has a self-centered and a wicked heart. The rich man spent his money on luxuries while Lazarus laid at his gate suffering. And his self-centered use of money revealed his wicked heart. See, Jesus has been developing this point since the beginning of chapter 16, that we should use our money in ways that accord with God's purposes, that our stewardship of money is indicative of where our true affections lie. You cannot serve God and money, Jesus has said. And again, it's not that there's no implications for us as, as Christians. We shouldn't be so quick to dismiss the warning. We've, we've been freed from the penalty of sin. We're not in, if you're in Christ this morning, you're not in danger of the eternal wrath of God. But we should heed this, this warning that as you read the first couple of verses and you read about the rich man and then you read about Lazarus, for all of us in the room this morning, we measure up a lot closer to the rich man than we do Lazarus. And so there is a warning for us this morning not to treat money in ways that are self-centered and and self-focused. Don't use money to fulfill the selfish desires of the flesh. Don't get drawn away into guessing that true joy and true happiness is found in, in my boat or my house or my car or my bank account. For those who have come to Christ, the the goal is that money would increasingly become a means by which you love your neighbor, a means by which you serve others, a means by which you ultimately glorify God. We use money, we love God. Remember Jesus, we we don't use God to try to get more money. Notice as well that This man's money no longer accounts for anything in eternity. And Jesus has made this point previously with the rich fool. But there's no relief for the rich man. There's no relief that he can purchase. So again, we're reminded that money or success or comfort, those sorts of things are not the indicator that God's favor 
You are resting in God's grace. And another hopeful statement, I think, is this. Nor is the presence of great suffering an indication that God has forsaken you. We don't look at these earthly circumstances and try to determine where we're at with the Lord. What matters eternally is how you or I stand in relation to God. Not our circumstances. It's how we stand in relation to God. So we want to avoid being simplistic with this passage. People have sort of lifted this passage out of the context of the rest of Scripture. I think sort of twisted it, maybe abused it. We want to avoid being simplistic here. It's not that all the rich go to hell and all the poor go to heaven. As if the person who lives the good life on earth will inevitably wind up in hell, while those who suffer in this life automatically wind up in heaven. Instead, this parable is illustrating what Jesus taught earlier in the chapter about being stewards of our money in ways that are generous and loving towards our neighbor. The rich man, in other words, is not condemned because he is rich, but because he allowed money to wear calluses on his heart, and he demonstrated that callousness by looking at Lazarus every day saying, I think I'll buy a new outfit. I think I'll order another steak. He disregarded others and served himself. He served money by becoming consumed with his own joy and his own leisure, all the while failing to consider Lazarus. Because of his hardness of heart, he is separated from God and has therefore received all the joy he'll ever know, all the joy he'll ever know in this life, in his life on earth. And he looks up, and he sees Abraham and Lazarus far off, and they aren't in torment. They're separated, we'll see in a moment, by this great chasm. I think we want to be careful not to, again, press details of parables too far. I don't think Jesus is giving us a, a theology of heaven and hell, and, oh, you can see each other, and you can talk to... I, I don't think that's the point of Jesus' parable. The point is an illustration that these two men have divergent eternity, eternal destinies. So I think there's a warning and a comfort here for us. The warning is that comfort and ease in this life are actual dangers to us assessing our standard, our standing before God. We are prone to assume that all things continue as they are. Right? That's what First Peter is sort of arguing. That you think all things are going to continue as they are. And we'll continue through eternity. If this, if this life is good, and if you're comfortable, and you're rich here, then automatically it's good for you in the future. Well, there's a warning. What matters is your standing with God. But also, again, a comfort that suffering in this life is not the last word. The sufferings, Paul says, of this present world are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Nothing, nothing in all creation can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So life on earth is not heaven, and life on earth is not hell. 
The, the, the sufferings of Lazarus are nothing compared to the sufferings of, of hell, and, and the, the joys of the rich man are nothing compared to the joys of eternity. The rich man finds himself in a worse state than Lazarus ever experienced. And so in the rest of our text, what we get then is the words of, of the rich man, the interaction with the rich man with Abraham. Though Lazarus receives a name, and we said there's, there's a reason for his name and for Jesus giving this guy a name in his parable. But the reality is that Lazarus doesn't speak once in this story. And so the rest of our text is, is the interaction between the rich man and Abraham. And I've just titled it The Request there in verses 24 through 31. Notice what the rich man does in verse 24. Notice how, how he refers to Abraham. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. The rich man begins with what we might call an appeal to his Israelite heritage. He addresses Abraham as Father Abraham. Now we know that, that in a sense that's correct, and Abraham even goes on to address him as, as child. Abraham was the beginning of the Jewish Israelite people. God called uh, Abraham in Genesis 12, or well, Abram at that point, promised him a lineage that would outnumber the stars. But many in Israel had come to sort of rely on this heritage for their salvation. Assume, like the rich man, that, that he's okay with God because he's born into this covenant people, Israel. But we've seen, even in Luke, that John the Baptist came, and Jesus has done this too, but John the Baptist came and completely undermined this assumption. John the Baptist came preaching the necessity of repentance, and he said, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And then he said this, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. Don't think you're excluded from the need for repentance because you can say, I have Abraham as my father. I am an Israelite. John said, for I tell you, God is able to raise from these stones children for Abraham. So he appeals to this lineage that he has. But notice his request. Send Lazarus over here, would you? We get a glimpse into the way the rich man continues to think even into eternity and the way he continues to think about Lazarus. Abraham I respect, and I'm respectable, so we'll just treat this little guy Lazarus like he's a little lackey that can run back and forth and do our bidding. He's simply a servant to be ordered around. He wants mercy from Lazarus, but of course he showed no mercy to Lazarus while Lazarus laid at his gate starving and covered in sores. And so look at Abraham's response in verse 25. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. There's this re reversal of fortunes brought about in eternity. 
what Lazarus was in the old life. This is what Abraham's saying. What Lazarus was in the old life, the rich man has become. What Lazarus lacked, the rich man now lacks. What the rich man refused to provide for Lazarus, Lazarus cannot provide for him in eternity. We could go further and say Lazarus becomes richer than the rich man ever experienced and could have ever, ever dreamed of attaining. And the rich man becomes poorer and more needy than he could ever have thought of on earth. The one who seemed to be favored in this life is demonstrated to be under the curse of God. And the one who seemed to be cursed by God receives eternal life because God is my help. He was reliant on God's grace. The poor man is at Abraham's side while the rich man looks on. In other words, the rich man is reaping in eternity what he has sown on this earth. The rich man's lack of compassion, his hardness of heart, has resulted in an absence of mercy eternally. And so there's this great reversal that happens in eternity. Consider, even in the beginning of Luke, what Mary said um, about God's work. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. This is the way God operates. He brings the high low and he elevates the low to a high status. It's this idea of a great reversal. Now we've already sort of pushed aside this idea that we can come to this text simplistically and say there's a one-to-one, poor on earth equals in heaven, and vice versa. We've seen, though, that as we've developed and walked through the gospel of Luke, that the poor, the down and out, the outcast, even the sinners and the tax collectors, they are often the ones who receive God's mercy because they are often the very ones humble enough to see their need and to call upon Christ for His grace. The mighty and the rich and the comfortable and the well-off often trust in their own riches. It's hard to be humble. It's hard to recognize your need when you have very little need in this life. Now again, thankfully for our sake, what's impossible is made possible through the work of Christ. So not only does Abraham say, well, there's this reversal, what you had in this life, Lazarus is now experiencing. But Abraham points out that there's this great chasm between the righteous and the unrighteous. Again, look there in verse 26. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Again, I don't think Jesus is developing a, a view of heaven and hell that you can talk to each other and, and you can see each other, but I do think he's making the point that there's no crossing back and forth. There's an uncrossable chasm, canyon gap. In C.S. Lewis's great divorce, there's a bus that will take you from hell to heaven. 
And they'll try to convince you in heaven to stay there. Now, I love C.S. Lewis, and I think he's making lots of points with that book. It is a work of fiction. But the reality is, there is no bus. There is no bus. There's a finality to this. There's no crossing that great gulf. The judgment handed down, God's verdict, in other words, is final. And it is eternal. And so the rich man seems to come to this sad realization that, that okay, I, I'm done arguing for relief. I'm done arguing what, whether Lazarus can come over here. He seems to realize that there's no way for him to change his eternal destiny, so he turns his attention and his request towards his family who are still living. We can see there in verses 27 and 28. And he said, Then I beg you, Father to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. He asks that Lazarus might then, if he can't come over here, let him at least go in some sort of maybe a vision or some sort of ghostly sight. Let him go and and warn them. This is such such a brilliant in a cool way for Jesus to teach. Notice that the the, the rich man in Hades essentially ends up preaching the message that he would want his brothers to hear. So in a way, Jesus is preaching, preaching to his listeners through the voice of the bad guy in the story. Well, what would the rich man want his brothers to hear? A warning. He wants them to be warned. And given all that Jesus has been saying, the warning might sound something like this, don't rely on your riches. You can't serve God and money. Turn to the Lord and serve Him with everything you have. Repent and demonstrate your repentance through a generous heart and demonstrate that you have indeed indeed thrown yourself at God's grace in Christ. The warning might sound like you don't want to come into this place. Life on earth is so short, don't trade the fleeting pleasures of sin for eternal life with God. He wants his brothers to be warned, to repent. But notice Abraham's answer. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. What an incredible claim this is. That a message from Lazarus, who's been to Abraham's side, he's been to paradise, heaven. A message from Lazarus would be no clearer than what they already have in the Old Testament. In Moses and the prophets. Jesus is saying the the Scriptures are not unclear. And if they haven't heard the Scriptures, they would not hear you. The Old Testament Scriptures were clear about Israel's responsibility. Even if we want to get down to like Lazarus being poor and laying at the gate, the Old Testament was clear that Israel had a responsibility to care for the poor, to be generous with their wealth, and not to act in ways that are oppressive towards this helpless man. But the rich man and his family, they have everything they need in the Word of God to know that's how they should have acted towards him. 
their disobedience to the word that they had revealed that though they might have known the word, though they might have been able to even recite the word, they hadn't hidden that word in their heart, it hadn't affected their lives, and they hadn't sought certainly to obey God from the heart. You see, the rich man is convinced what they need is just a message from the grave. You know, like Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. You know, if we can just send a ghost, as a Jacob Marley, if we could just send Marley over to him, he would convince Scrooge to become a, a selfless and a generous man. But Abraham doesn't share that sort of optimistic view of man. They have Moses and the prophets. If they didn't hear them, they will not hear you. You know, this, so this, this is like uh, just an application from the text, but I would say this. This gives us, I think this text gives us good reason to doubt those stories about people who say, well, I went to heaven and I've come back, or I've gone to hell and I've come back to tell you about what my experience was. Now, now for one, a lot of those stories contradict one another, so, like, if they have different details, who actually went? Some have changed their stories multiple times. Like, they read the Bible and, like, oh, maybe I wasn't supposed to say I saw this because the Bible says it's not there. But true or not, I do have a concern for the way those books get treated and talked about. As if the experience of someone supersedes and is far more exciting and far more powerful than the Word of God itself. Some have functionally taken the view of the rich man, where he pushes back on Abraham and says, no, send him because the scriptures are not enough. If someone from the dead goes and tells them, then they will hear the warning and repent. But Abraham affirms that the, the Old Testament had everything they needed to know God, to know how they should have obeyed God even as Jesus has been pointing out that he has fulfilled the law. J.C. Ryle says it this way, faith, simple faith in the scriptures which we already possess, that is, that we possess the scriptures, not that we already possess the faith necessarily, is the first thing needful for salvation. The man who has the Bible and can read it and yet waits for more evidence before he becomes a Christian is deceiving himself. He's deceiving himself. Except he awakens from his delusion, he will die in his sins. So again, Abraham doesn't share this sort of optimistic view of man that, hey, if we had more evidence, we would turn and serve the Lord. We've seen in the Gospel of Luke, many signs and wonders have been performed. Many miracles have been done by Christ himself. Yet many looked on at all the evidence you could ever imagine. And they've said, we need to put this man to death. Some went so far as to say that Jesus, they couldn't deny what they had just seen, so they had to pin the power on something else and said, well, he must be working through the power of Satan. It wasn't a lack of evidence. It was a hardened heart. So we aren't surprised by Abraham's final reply in verse 31. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, 
neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. In other words, not even a resurrection would convince those who think they need more evidence. God uses the Word of God to open hearts and minds to their need and the meeting of that need in Christ Jesus. The Scriptures are sufficient testimony to the truth. The rich man's family doesn't need someone to come back from the dead to tell them the truth. Now, there's there's no way Jesus' audience would have understood this to be sort of looking forward to the resurrection. I mean, the disciples were told explicitly, like, I'm going to rise from the grave, and they still missed it. But by the time Luke recorded this, by the time Luke wrote his gospel, his readers would likely see in this a reference to what had taken place in between this, Jesus telling this parable, and Luke's gospel being written. They would likely have understood it as a reference to the resurrection of Christ. And so in one sense, you could say even the resurrection of Christ would not be enough for many. And you see that develop in the the book of Acts. So by means of this parable, Jesus has circled back to what he was teaching in verses 16 and 17, that Jesus has... come to fulfill the law. And so in that sense, the law will not fully pass away. That He is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant and He is the one, He is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises as well. He is the one to which all the signs in, in Moses and the prophets, they were all pointing forward to Him. But many rejected this. It was this rejection This rejection from the heart that caused so many in Israel to miss that Christ was who He said He was. Jesus told His detractors in John chapter 5, if you would have believed Moses, you would have believed Me. It's not that the Old Testament was unclear. It was that they they missed the point. They rejected the point. The law and the prophets then are sufficient because they point forward to Jesus Christ. The law and the prophets were enough because they pointed to the coming of Christ. That He is the only one, the only hope for rich or poor. He has come to rescue from that agony that was described in our text for all those who would admit that they need a Savior because they've recognized, they've been given a sight of their own sin. Even the sin of greed and the sin of love of money, Christ has come to make a way for the unrighteous to be made righteous. The law was given in part to reveal this heart. Yet Jesus has come to save lawbreakers from the penalty of breaking the law. He took on Himself the curse of sin. He died the death He did not deserve to die, taking the penalty of sin, dying on that cross and being resurrected from the grave, having accomplished what He came to accomplish. Granting eternal life to all those who recognize their need for Christ, recognize that they have sinned against Him, Recognize that we've used money in ways that don't please God. We've served ourselves. So we can grow after coming into Christ. We can grow into the image of Christ. 
and put away this reliance on the uncertainty of riches because we have fully leaned on Christ, the one who has come to save. You know, Gordon Fee, he's a, a writer, a theologian, a, a commentary writer, a professor. He just passed away recently, and I, I use the story of men's Bible study, but I thought it was helpful as I thought about Lazarus. And, and you know, when somebody dies, a lot of people begin to eulogize someone or they begin to share stories that they appreciate about this person. And one of my favorite stories that sort of came out in the wake of his death were from some of his students who said that in class, Gordon Fee said, someday you're going to read the headline, Gordon Fee is dead. And he said, do not believe it. He is in heaven singing with his Lord. And for all those who turn and trust in Jesus Christ, and for you who have done that this morning, there's a certainty. This is the level of certainty we can have if we're found in Christ. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do think, thank you that we have hope in the midst of the prospect of death. We don't look forward to that day, but we are grateful that we can face it with courage and hope, knowing that you are good to your people and you carry them home. Lord, may we please and honor and glorify you while we live in this life. May we, may we demonstrate the genuineness of our repentance and faith. In Jesus' name, amen.